I cannot swear to you that there is swearing on this show, but there might be. It's the kind of behavior I engage in. It's Monday, September 17th, 2018. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca, and in the spiel, I will get to the news, the Kavanaugh accusation news. But before the news, I bring you the weather. This is in Carolina Beach in North Carolina, Forest Miguel. Uh, you are on the water in very dangerous conditions. I want you to be safe, but update us on what you're seeing and hearing. It looks awful. It is almost, dare I say, a near category two. I cannot state too strongly just how almost category two it is. It's, Wolf, if you, if you can hear me, I'm still here. It's almost... As if all those warnings about staying inside were actually wise, and I'm a combination of an idiot guinea pig and a sacrificial pinata for your amusement. Back to you, Wolf. And might I add that the beard's getting a little shaggy. If you're setting the razor on one, it is the longest one, nearly a two, that I've ever seen. Hurricanes. Windy for those involved. But if you're watching from home, you could drink every time someone says hunker. Uh, emergency services have just basically hunkered down for as long as possible. Miguel Marquez was left to remember some Van Morrison lyrics he heard once in his youth. Getting wet with our backs against the fence. level, TV news is ridiculous. On another, storms are dangerous, which would all be fine and a thing we knew, except now storms are also political. I can't say I like it. The Washington Post editorial board ran a headline, another hurricane is about to batter our coast. True. Trump is complicit. Debatable. And they had the debate on Fox News about 43 times on every show I turned into. Their storm coverage was mostly people debating about this Washington Post headline. Not much of a debate. Here's Sean Hannity, rest control of the narrative. When it comes to extreme weather, Trump is complicit. He plays down humans' role in increasing the risk. He continues to dismantle efforts to address those risks. Is Donald Trump, Donald J. Trump, our president, complicit because we have a a hurricane about to hit the Carolinas, Geraldo Rivera. Well, Sean, I, I think that he is indeed uh, complicit. I think he is also complicit in the stock market crash of 1929. Ooh, ends on a down note there. Didn't expect that at the end. Hurricane Geraldo to sweep in. The problem is that while, of course, global warming is real and can exacerbate and does exacerbate the effects of a storm, storms are also quite potent without having anything to do with global warming. In terms of wind speed, the way we have measured storms forever, storms have not actually been getting any worse since before the Earth's surface temperature began to rise. There is evidence that storms have gotten wetter in terms of peak rainfall, but I am reticent to allow the news media, especially the cable news media, to be the one to put this in proper, careful, sober context. The question of attribution, just how much did global warming contribute to any one hurricane, is an open question. I have read studies that try to say, with global warming, the storm would look like this. Without global warming, it would look like that. And those are interesting studies. That is science. I defer to science. Still, there is a lot of hype out there. I have heard dozens and dozens of times about thousand-year rainfall and unprecedented rainfall. But it's very hard to separate hype 
Here's Al Roker. And rainfall is going to be unprecedented. We're looking at a flood threat into early next week with anywhere from 10 to 20 inches of rain from Myrtle Beach all the way up to Cape Hatteras. And again, with upwards of three feet of rain. So unprecedented means, of course, without precedent. Yet Harvey gave us 60 inches over Houston last year. So this rainfall will be bad and will cause flooding, but it won't approach that very recent precedent. It is the most rain that Elizabethtown, North Carolina, has experienced so far since they've been recording rain in Elizabethtown. It's more than four times the amount they've ever experienced in so short an amount of time. Look, this hurricane definitely seems bad, but mostly it seems like a hurricane. Like the hurricanes we've been having since I was a kid and before. A dozen dead, a tragedy to be sure, but that's what happens in a hurricane. Flooding, which could get worse, and let's, of course, do everything we can to help the people and to keep an eye on it, but that's what happens during a hurricane. We act like every hurricane is worse than the last one and unprecedented and like nothing we have ever seen. And is this because it really is? Or is this because we have every incentive in the media to act like it is the worst and unprecedented and like nothing we've ever seen? I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. I do know that Trump is a global warming denialist, but I also know that even if Bill Nye were elected in 2018, North Carolina would still be getting a lot of rain by a hurricane probably named Florence. And I also know poor Miguel on CNN would be out there to chronicle it. We're now using a satellite phone and some other technology to even get this five shot out. It is absolute pandemonium here. On the show today, a spiel about Judge Kavanaugh and his accuser. But first, he is a star of dozens and dozens of movies. He is now a director of his first full-length feature film in over a decade. Ethan Hawke is an important actor to We Generation Xers. And as I found out, just an interesting guy to chat with. Ask him a good question, you'll get a good answer. That is my criteria. Here's Ethan Hawke. This episode is brought to you by The Jordan Harbinger Show. You've heard me talk about The Jordan Harbinger Show because it's one of my favorites. He does in-depth interviews with some of the world's most fascinating minds. I can name a few. Barbara Boxer, Anderson Cooper, Michael McFall, the Ukraine or Russia ambassador talking about Ukraine. One I recently listened to was Stanley McChrystal, the general, the former general. And he told uh, an interesting story about revering Robert E. Lee. But then, after having a portrait of him for 40 years, he's a 63-year-old man throwing it in the trash because his wife says, you know, what that picture and that man means to you, it doesn't mean to other people, and you have to understand that. And then in the interview, they got around to the point where McChrystal talked about that interview in Rolling Stone magazine that pretty much ended his career, where I uh, got to the desk of Barack Obama, and it had McChrystal saying unflattering things about the war effort and just how he talked to his wife and how they decided not to be bitter and not to wallow in. He could have taken some shots at the process, the reporter or the president at that point, but he didn't. It was just an overall good interview. It was facilitated by Jordan's excellent interview style. Whether Jordan is conducting an interview or giving advice to a listener, you will find something useful that can apply to your own life in every single episode of The Jordan Harbinger Show. That could mean learning how to ask for advice the right way or discovering a little mindset tweak that changes how you see the world. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show, that's H-A-R, like the first three letters in hard, 
B-I-N-G-E, as in how you'll want to catch up on all the episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Blaze is a new film by Ethan Hawke. Blaze is the name of Blaze Foley, who was this amazing and largely, very largely forgotten musician from Texas in the 70s through the 80s before he was murdered. But the thing about Blaze, the name Blaze, it's the exact opposite of the metier of the title character, meaning this is a guy who shambles, who is shaggy, who tell shaggy dog stories. There's almost nothing about him that blazes, except like a meteor, it was there brightly and is now forgotten. Ethan Hawke, the director, is with me now. Great to have you here. Great to be here. New movie, Blaze, terrific movie. Love it. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> is it a challenge, fun? Was it conscious that you wanted to do a movie with a main character who's his own worst enemy? Because... That's both interesting from an artistic standpoint, but it's challenging to the audience because the audience could be repelled by him. Super challenging. I mean, I often find myself wondering why myself, why my friends, people I know, why we have so much to be grateful for and so much good going on, and we sometimes torpedo our own fleet. Uh, I remember once Richard Linkletter saying to me, I was about 25, doing Before Sunrise, and him saying to me, you know, if you really go through a list of artists, of the ones who really didn't achieve their dreams, Mm -hmm. it's not the cruel, mean world that destroys them, usually. It's themselves. And I remember thinking, that's kind of fascinating. And I don't know, I, I think Blaze Foley interested me because he's both, he walks that line between a beautiful artist who worked at a very high level during his life, was met with pretty much indifference yeah. from the community. Yeah. But when he had a shot, he screwed it up. Yeah. And I guess I, some part of me saw in him a really interesting study. And I think to, what makes it watchable is that at its core, the way to tell that story is through the eyes of someone who loves him. Which is Sybil. Sybil Rosen. This woman wrote a book called Living in the Woods in a Tree, and it's about falling in love with this crazy big old boy from Arkansas. They lived in a treehouse, sang songs, and she still started realizing his songs were so good that, you know, he should he should do this. Yeah. And how you go from this Whitman-esque, Eden-esque paradise of falling in love, making love, you know, cooking by the campfire, chopping carrots, talking to the squirrels, this kind of perfection to being shot dead in the street uh, seemed to me like the stuff of an opera. So you had the musician play your character. I read a quote that, so you, you were Chet Baker uh, a a few years ago. And I read this quote where you said in playing Chet Baker, I couldn't get close to the most essential part of him that I really wanted to, which was his relationship with the trumpet. And I kept asking myself if I ever made a movie about a musician, I'd cast a musician and teach him how to act. So as an actor, you're often asked to hand, to do something, to fake something or to learn something. What was it about being a musician? that got in your way is it your respect or reverence for that actual instrument and that art that you didn't want to seem like you were faking the art yeah first of all let me be clear like i love born to be blue and i loved working on it and and i could put a lot of myself in it but what i couldn't do i couldn't actually 
like if I'm supposed to play a cowboy, mm-hmm. right? I'm supposed to ride in at the end of Magnificent Seven and and fire guns and you know, well, I can practice that. I can't learn in three months, nine months, four years how to play the trumpet like Chet Baker. And you know what? I could ask Charlie Sexton to play all of Townsend's Marie in one take and have the camera push in on him the whole time. And you know what? He really can play that song. Yeah. Not just learn it. He can play it. I want to ask you a couple more things. In one of these interviews, I heard you say, look, the movie cost $1.2 million, but I hate when movie makers brag about how little their movies cost. I do too, because I still got to pay 18 bucks for it either way at the cinema draft house. And you know what? So I'm, damn, I'm damn less inclined to do it if you spend so little making right, it. Right, right. If my I, ticket I want, price is like 1% of your budget, what the hell? <laughs> I don't want to be out of pocket. I hate it. And you know, if you look at a good movie, you know, whether it's Moonlight or Logan, yeah. right? It doesn't matter. It couldn't matter less. It's do you have something to say and did you say it? Uh, I think that th- the truth is the people who make movies, the business that makes movies, is so upset by how mercurial it is and how unknowable it is. People who invest money want a metric. Mm-hmm. They want a metric so they can feel good that if I invest X, I will get Y. And the arts just don't work that way, so it's incredibly confusing. Right, right. And if someone listening is saying, yeah, but all those Marvel movies make money, well, they're well done, and there are a bunch of superhero movies that don't make money because they're there, not well done. There really are. Yeah. Now, I know you criticized the superhero movie as the dominant genre. That's how I took your uh, statements, and you got a little shit on it because this is the law of the land in America in 20. 20- but I have to agree with you. I love many of those superhero movies, but if the purpose of art is to real reveal something about the human condition, there is a limit. There is a ceiling to what these superhero movies can do because essentially you're talking about a fake world without humans. Here's the point. You can have a comic book that can rattle your world and make and fill you with ideas and question things deeper and more profoundly than Bergman or Fellini ever could. Mm -hmm. But if that's all we're watching and all we're investing in, we're just dissipating what the art form can do, right? I mean, there's certain things, like, for example, um, there's a time for uh, Death of a Salesman and there is a time for Dark Knight, right? But if all you have is Death of a Salesman, you're going to fall radically asleep and right. always be bored. Which is why when Frank Miller comes along with Dark Knight, everyone's eyes are open because there awesome. wasn't anything like that. And, right? and what I, I just, I'm what Marvel is excelling. And Marvel has done such an unbelievable job that everybody is imitating them. Right. Do you know? Yeah. Everybody is imitating what they're doing. Everybody's wanting to do, even indie little art house movies try to have a little superhero element to them. You know, they try to be sexy in the same way. They try to be cool in the same way. And it's just, it's frustrating. I'm trying, it's such a victory when you have a movie like Moonlight win Best Picture because what that that has so many positive ramifications in my field, meaning producers and investors are like, oh wow, I could make money doing something besides zombie pictures or superhero mm-hmm. things. People, there is an audience for it. And what I'm trying, I believe there is an audience for Raiders of the Lost Ark. There is an audience for Bergman films. There is an audience, you know, like First Reform, this movie I didn't, nobody wanted to make that movie at first. Nobody thought there's an audience. There is an audience for serious movies. And 
the thing that is hard is we're getting so used to movies doing so much of the work for us yeah. that we get bored so much more easily. Yeah. And I, I, I fr- I'm frustrated with that because yeah. it makes it very hard to get my son to watch Rio Bravo, you know, or read a book for crying out loud or think about things in a more, in a different aspect than a comic book asks you. A comic books is, I, I mean, if it weren't for comic books, I would have never read. Okay. <laughs> I would never have read. Right. I mean, they they are my entrance point to all things good in the universe. I read an, a really interesting quote in uh, this uh, New York Times profile of you by Taffy Bradesser Ackner, who I think is maybe the best profiler going on. By the way, did you I don't know. Do you read profiles like that? I read that one. Did you think she did a good job? I never felt more vulnerable. So I think maybe she did. She's clearly an excellent writer and she clearly. Let me put it this way got so many emails from people that I've worked with over my life. You know, not a choreographer I worked with eight years ago, um, the person who did costumes on a play three years ago, one of the guys who did set design in a play I did when 20 years ago, Yeah, that the article meant something to them. And I, I have to give her credit. That's not me that's doing that. That's her. And so she clearly made sense of my life that made something impactful on her readership. Yeah. So here was the quote I wanted to read through you. Okay. Over the years, he, you, meaning Ethan, yes. somehow worn his critics down with his earnestness and his dedication and his sincerity, the same things that caused the ridicule in the first place. And my question is, the verb, worn his critics down, do you think they changed, you changed, or in some way society changed, cult, the culture changed? I don't know. There's something about being earnest that makes people uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. They love it if you're funny and they love if you're ironic and they love if you don't give it damn, right? Yeah. There's something, you know, about the word cool. Yeah. It means detached, yeah. right? And there's not something- Not giving. Not right. giving. Yeah. There's something sexy about that mm-hmm. that we all like. And my whole life, I was incredibly earnest, pretty straightforward about all this stuff. I think something does happen when the people writing about you are your own age or younger. Mm -hmm. There's something when people are older than you and they, and you take yourself seriously, the older generation has a desire to kind of chop you at the Achilles. Yeah. Who is this Pisha? (laughs) And you know what? I respect that. I really, I really respect it. I really think that if you can't survive, if you can't walk through that, then you shouldn't be here. And that it's really okay. And I've, I've come to this place where um, there is not any circumstance where somebody's negativity couldn't be used to make me stronger. Last question. When do I get the movie with the Sam Rockwell, Steve Zahn, and Linklater characters as themselves, how they made their money? So these guys show up in Blaze. <laughs> They're this Duisess Machina or something. I don't know what's going on. It's a little bit of a different movie, but those guys are great. Are you, let's, get, let's get their backstory and their own movie. Well, I just love those guys. You know, the movie is, uh, it deals with a lot of darkness and edge, and I needed... Uh, I needed Rosencrantz and Gilderstern to come in and and yeah. change the tone, change the mood. And also, they play these guys, Zephyr Records, right? And I don't know if you, do you ever see the movie Safe Men? Yeah, yeah. Sam Rockwell and Steve yeah. Zahn in <laughs> Safe Men are yeah. just 
staggeringly genius. And I wanted them in a movie. And I knew that Richard Linkletter is from Houston. He actually worked offshore oil. He knew the oil. And Zephyr Records was an oil company. They made such a bunch of money in the oil patch that they wanted to make some vinyl. Yeah. And, um, and I wanted the camera to see them the way that Blaze did. And a lot of times people who are really struggling with their art see people who have money and the power to make their dreams come true with anger, with antipathy. Mm-hmm. You know, they they are frustrated by them. And I just love it. Blaze and Towns threw a party at the Gramercy Park Hotel that they bought so many tequila sunrises that the whole record company went under (laughs) and that story was just amazing to me so i was like okay who is zephyr records and i don't exactly know why but i i thought steve's on um sam rockwell and richard linkletter and i would love to make a movie called zephyr records that's awesome yeah that's the newest prestige netflix or hbo 10 part (laughs) series right there Ethan Hawke is the director of the new movie Blaze, which is opened in, you know, cool cities like mine, but nationwide on September 21st. Thanks a lot, Ethan. Thanks for having me. And now the spiel. Brett Kavanaugh accused. When can we forgive the man already? The accusations have been out since the weekend. Hasn't he suffered enough? He's stuck there as one of the 179 most important judges in the country, but not one of the top nine. It is humiliating. Wait a minute. If this keeps him off the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court is, of course, a lifetime appointment, then isn't this a life sentence? Is that fair? A life sentence? So unfair. Look. By the time you hear this, and things may have changed unexpectedly, but my guess is that poor Kristen Blasey Ford will be torn apart by having come forward. Already, the right-wing media is posting her ratings on RateMyTeacher.com. Turns out, of the seven students who give ratings, some did not like her, though some do. So we know that she either was or wasn't sexually assaulted 25 years ago. My guess is... The standard to disqualify a judge who is going to get confirmed will not be met by an allegation without substantiation, and it is very hard to have substantiation in a case like this. Guy Benson, a conservative pundit, writes for Town Hall, hosts the You Hewitt show sometimes. He tweeted, proving a negative is impossible, especially almost four decades later, and the timing of this is highly suspect. I don't know if the timing truly is suspect, but it will certainly be seen as suspect. So unless big things happen unexpectedly, Blasey Ford will testify before the Senate. And the senators on the Judiciary Committee will try not to be stupid enough to appear insensitive. No Democrat will vote for Kavanaugh, and Kavanaugh will still be confirmed, unless something unexpected happens. But when all that goes down, I expect to see a quite solemn Jeff Flake or a sober-eyed Lindsey Graham intoning, there is just not enough evidence for me to say under our standards of law, standards that Judge Kavanaugh is sworn to uphold, and he has been an exemplary jurist, there's just not enough evidence there for me to find that he did it, so I vote aye. When that happens, Democrats will cry, how could you, Jeff Flake? You said you were, or implied maybe, that you were kind of a soft resistance. And they will not understand that Flake and Sass and Corker and the like 
are in it for the judges. These conservatives aren't quote unquote resisting Trump so that he can't get his judges. They are ahem, ahem, resisting him so that they can get their judges. And he's one of their judges. When that happens, one way to look at it will be the Supreme Court will consist of five out of nine justices who may vote to restrict a woman's right to an abortion. And of those five, two will have been shown to have harassed or alleged to have sexually assaulted women. Another way to look at that is that a third of the men on the court will be alleged abusers or corroborated harassers. Now, I've yet to come across one prominent person who supported Judge Kavanaugh before the weekend, who now says, well, this is disqualifying. On the other side, there are a couple of prominent thinkers like Rosa Brooks and Emily Bazelon, who didn't change from a no to a yes, but they say these charges themselves are not disqualifying. In Emily Bazelon's words, I would not disqualify Kavanaugh from SCOTUS for this alleged assault alone because I think kids should be treated like kids. Though she says if he is found to have been lying now as an adult about having taken a part in this assault as a teen, that would be disqualifying. I do not actually think it's hypocritical. I do not think it's flawed motivation to explain why these allegations aren't changing anyone's minds. One's thoughts on Kavanaugh's suitability for the court largely maps onto one's opinion on Roe versus Wade. Most people who believed the accusations, are also very worried about Roe versus Wade being overturned. Most people who would be fine with Kavanaugh being the decisive vote to overturn Roe and a raft of other reproductive or women's rights issues, at the very least are not the types who immediately assume guilt with every accusation. Politically speaking, I do see a positive for the Democrats, and it's this. They are, though, like I say, not in a position to vote Kavanaugh off the court, barring the unexpected, or barring a Trump eruption, or barring a moment a male senator, and that's all the Republicans have on the Judiciary Committee, treats the witness poorly. I don't think they could stop that. But the positive is this. This is where taking the hard line on Al Franken pays off. Many Democrats, men and women, express real ambivalence about Franken's ouster. I got that, but I also got the politics. This is where it pays to either be the party that countenances sexual harassment, or to be the party that doesn't. Kicking Al Franken out of the Senate put the Democrats in a fine position. They can now own the mantle of being the party that does not stand for sexual harassment. And the Republicans can say, well, we don't either. I mean, Roy Moore was the exception. And we denounced the words grab him by the pussy. And you haven't proved the Kavanaugh allegations. But they have a muddy message and the Democrats have a clear one. It may not even be fair. There are lots of Republicans who did oppose Roy Moore, who did not endorse Trump after grabbing by the pussy, who really don't think the Kavanaugh accusation is legitimate. And the Kavanaugh accusation might not be legitimate, but it doesn't matter. It's like this. Polls show Americans associate the American flag more with Republicans than with Democrats. That might not be fair, but it doesn't matter. That's how it is. Republicans made choices to own that issue. Sometimes they were pandering choices, but it worked politically. Democrats made choices to make an anti-sexual harassment stance their issue. And if you want to say brave, bold choices, fine. But it's now their issue. 
How much will this affect elections? I think maybe a little bit. Democrats have a hard time attracting white voters. And while whites are about two thirds of the country's population, not quite two thirds, they're almost three quarters of the electorate. Democrats are doing okay with college educated white voters, but this may win them some votes of white women, or at least turn those college uneducated white women off to Republicans. Now, if you ask me, what would I rather have? A Supreme Court aligned with my views or an impression among a slice of the electorate that could hurt my party? I would take having the Supreme Court. Of course, Republicans could try for both. They could still have the court and jettison Kavanaugh. They could back another, even more conservative jurist, maybe a woman. And they could try to hold on to the goodwill of white women. Of course, for this to happen, the president will have to back down. And that may be the most unexpected development of all. That's it for today's show that just was produced by Pierre Bienname and Daniel Schrader, who ask, leave your name, number, and a brief justification for the ontological necessity of modern man's existential dilemma. TJ Raphael is Slate's senior producer of podcasts. Every year for her birthday, her parents sent her the same desk set. But today, she's got to make it fly. Steve Lichtai is executive producer of Slate Podcasts, who wonders, okay, 50,000 years ago, there were not even a million people on the planet. 10,000 years ago, there were like 2 million people on the planet. Now there's between 5 or 6, actually 7 billion people on the planet, right? Now, if we all have our own, like, individual, unique soul, right, where do they come from? You know, are modern souls only a fraction of the original souls? Because if they are, that represents a 5,000 to 1 split of each soul in the last 50,000 years. And do each and every soul get their own podcast? And will the ratings on iTunes help with the listenership for every soul? It's a totally scattered thought. The gist, Javier was a little salty, but Gustavo paired well with a Malbec. Oomperu depperu duperu, and thanks for listening.